That's one difference maybe today. If I want to have real influence on decision, I don't speak about monetary policy before the governing council meetings. I saved my comment to the very end. And then in discussion, you have two positions. Do you want to shape the discussion or have influence on the decision? Shape the discussion, you must go in early. If you want to influence the decision when you do it, you must come later because then you can take into account what the others have said it, tried to form the compromises. It varied. I mean, I tried to, I always before, I tried to find between these two. But there are people who are listened to, and normally they are those ones who and they won't want to have influence on the decision. Because you need to have your opinion, but you need to have listened to the others, that how you formulate decisions in the way that all can follow it. Welcome to In The Room, conversations with Europe's hidden history makers. The European Union has grown through crisis, post-war rebuilding, oil shocks, the collapse of the Soviet bloc, successive currency and debt crises, pandemic and now war. When they're written, the histories of these crises tend to focus on figureheads, presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers. But the real work, the real negotiation, is done by top officials behind closed doors. And this is the first of a series of conversations with some of these people who were in the room as Europe evolved from a club of nations into a union. And I'm delighted to kick them off with a true veteran, a man with unrivaled experience of recent EU history from the inside. Eki Likonen was a politician from an outsider state bordering Russia in the 1970s. He was Finland's finance minister just before the Soviet Union's collapse. He was the ambassador who negotiated Finland's accession to the Union, a two-term European commissioner and a two-term member of the European Central Bank's governing council. We talked about the contrasting presidential styles of Jacques Santerre, Romano Prodi, Jean-Claude Trichet and Mario Draghi. We talked about Edith Cresson's scandal, the background to whatever it takes, and a lot more. So I bring you Eka Likonen. Well, let's begin at the beginning with your life before politics and before the European Union. Where were you born and raised and what were the influences on you? I was born in eastern Finland. The post-war Finland had big impact on me because my mother was evacuated from Karelia, the part we lost to the Soviet Union, Stalin. My father was the youngest of the family of 11 who went to army at the age of 18. And he returned from the war in the end of Germany in 1945. And they met in my hometown and got married and I was the second of the child. And how big was your hometown? Uh, we had my hometown... It was 20, 25,000 inhabitants for a small town. And my parents actually met in religious youth movement. Normally people started dancing, <laughs> dancing after the war when it was allowed, but they were religious. So I was brought up with a religious family, low middle class life. None of my parents had anybody who had academic education in their family. Where did that, I mean, I've read pieces about your childhood and your love of books. How did that develop? There are actually two stories. My father, he was, finally he was like a porter in administration, but he made so little money that he had to have many other jobs. So he was also a book agent and insurance seller and still a tailor, part-time tailor. He did all this at the same time? Yeah, yeah, evenings. Daily he would read evenings. And this bookseller was good because he had to have books at home. So I started to study, read read everything what he was selling. 
But then we moved to next house and we went to next to library. I was very, very lucky. So I was nine when our home was 150 meters for local library. And I read through and it was great, great experience. <laughs> Were you reading in foreign languages at that time? No, 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 not at the time. My parents had no, they had never been abroad, except of course Russia with the war. Yeah. I have no connection with foreign languages. There was no television, you know, I, I didn't hear anything in foreign languages. So it was just Finnish. We, when I was 11, I started to study Swedish. That was the first <laughs> foreign language, then came English. And, I mean, given your parents' background and the location of your childhood, did you grow up with thinking of Russia? Did it feel like a frontier town? Yes, of course it did. And it's, you know, my mother, the Karelians are lively Finns. You know, normally Finns don't talk. <laughs> we are quiet. <laughs> the only exceptions are the Karelians or, or some people in the East. And so she spoke a lot about Karelia and about the events. Of, because they had been evacuated twice from their home hmm. by the area. But, but she spoke, but father never. That's interesting that really Finnish men never spoke about the war. It was such an experience for them that they shared their thoughts only of themselves. Mm. We are living by the lake, and the next day but there was a house of war invalids. And I saw when they came every Thursday, even to sauna, never spoke. Some had lost his arm, the other one, leg. They never spoke until they had closed the no, in sauna they spoke there. So it was like quiet. It was item we didn't touch. We knew it was very tough. But my mother, lovely Karelian, she always spoke about the Laduka Lake, by which she put, which they lost. It was present, but no discussion by father. And that was same for many because it was such a hard experience. Well, again, I've read an interview you gave where you talked about men in the village or men in the town who, for many reasons, perhaps for that, who turned to drink. There was a problem with alcoholism. It was after the war. It was after the war, of course. After It had terrible impact on people. It was not, if you look at percentages, it was not very broad. But, I mean, there was some serious problem with alcoholism after the war. And religion was a major factor in it. Your... Was, it was a dividing issue. But in my family, it happened to be so that my parents both had religious backgrounds. And then, of course, we brought in the address. I always remember because there was also dancing house not far of us and one day we went to watch young people there my parents were absolutely negative so dancing was not allowed and even though our religious were very negative so it was very puritan created environment i was brought up Hmm. and how soon did you discover this political vocation my first big issue was invasion of hungary i was six years old and we had radio my parents always told that I woke up six o'clock in the morning to listen to all the news and explain that to everybody. But that was a, one of those immense events, immense at the time, because it was somehow, you know, it was the same Soviet Union, one neighboring country. But everything was not that difficult, easy to understand, because all the internal developments of Hungary was very complicated. But it was, that was something I, I followed very closely. But then the next one, important one, was 19... 61, I was then just turned 10. We had President Kekkonen was running for the third term. Then there was a tension between Soviet Union and Finland. Soviet Union wanted to have impact on our presidency elections. But that was my, I mean, big story to follow. Hmm. How early did you join the Social Democratic I, I, I was, it was funny, when I was 15, we had a very active high school student movement in Finland. And we, we, we big issues were like third world 
and also school reform, because we had a school system which divided young people at the age of 10. One path went to universities, the other one either to work, perhaps vocational school somewhere else. And it was, of course, talent helped, but it was not the key. It was very much dependent on the background where these families were. I found it extremely unfair and improper. That was one reason I joined Social Democrats, because they were pushing for school reforms. For all. And the second one was this third world, because that was time of when colonies became independent. We had a very interesting history also, that because Finnish missionaries were very long-working in Southwest Africa. And one of my parents' friend was missionary there, but he was, they were very much bound to the history of Namibia later. And so there were reasons for political activities. It was school reform and third world independence. Right. And at this stage, did you think in a sort of European way, or was it quite Finnish and internationalist? Europe was very far. Yeah. I mean, very difficult to imagine, but, you know, my first trip abroad, I made what I was 17. I applied for a scholarship there were one scholarship was given to Finnish, young Finnish students who were ready to go to America for the spring term 68. It was paid by CBS TV. And by perhaps a lot of luck, I applied, wrote articles about foreign forest policy, was interviewed, and I was totally there. So my first trip to foreign countries from Mikkeli, 25,000, to New York City. And they had to behave as if I was not very amazed. So that, so, so that was between all about foreign countries where just, you know, you had read, you had he heard, and then television came, of course, in the 1960s. But my first physical trip to foreign countries was when I was 17. Right. And you became an MP very young. I mean, what was the trajectory from Mikali and this political activism to actually being in organized politics? I spoke to you about the secondary schools movement. So I became actually... After I had returned from America, finished my school, I was elected the chair of the organization, well, the biggest youth organization in Finland. At the same time, I was also active in the social with the youth movement. And then President Kekkonen dissolved the parliament in 1972. President could do it himself. Just finished my work as a chair of this youth movement. And people asked me to become a candidate. So I went to run for parliament at the age of 21, and I was elected. And so it just, I don't finish my studies. I had to complete my studies. I still had to go to an army when I was a member of parliament. I had to leave my seat for dual military service. And I got married during the first term. That was pretty <laughs> active period. <laughs> and you became a minister quite young too. Yeah, but I actually, yeah, I was what, 21 when I was in parliament, but I was already on my fifth term when I became minister because I was, then at the time there was a choice. Either you are leader of the party, you have influence there, or you uh, became a minister. And I was elected the secretary general of the Social Democratic Party when I was 31, 30 years old. And you had like global responsibility. So I finished that job before I went to government. I was then 36, I became finance minister of the country. But I, I beat my fifth term in parliament. And still in politics, terms served count more than your age. At the start, you get some critical comments about your age, but I mean, it, it goes away with years. And you became minister just before the enormous crisis that hit the Finnish <clears throat> economy, I think. Yes, it was 1960. It was like 1987, and I was minister then, and there were two or three big issues. I mean, policy-related issue, which we did, was major tax reform, 
we abolished 30 tax allowances and lowered tax rates. So broaden tax base, lowly tax rate. I had studied economics. I was a master of economics, my education. So I worked for that purpose. Second problem was then the liberalization of the financial markets, which was not like a political act. That was the tone of the time. Yeah. And that led to the explosion of the of bank credit and in higher indebtedness. And then third issue came after was then the collapse of the Soviet Union because the trade with the East was a very important part of Finnish business, especially for their profitability, not so much for the turnover. Actually, one of the leading economists, Ukrainian economists who works in Berkeley, Korodchenko, has made perhaps the most well-known paper about this Finnish crisis. You mm. want to have a look at it here. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And, I mean, it was around this time you decided to move to, <clears throat> to Brussels. What made you want to... You became the Finnish ambassador to Brussels. What provoked that? When I was in government, it was my fifth term. So already at home we agreed that before I'm 40, we must move on because there had been only politics in our life. Mm. And it's a commitment. At the same time, when you were a finance minister, you had endless tension with your old party. And so I had to play it very tough. So that I threatened to resign and so forth. That's my last time. Then I said, I want to move on. Then I was proposed to go to foreign service. I had private other options, but the foreign service. And they proposed me either to go to ambassador, be ambassador in OECD, Bonn or EU. And they said, you choose. And they said, to EU. So... That was agreed in principle when I was 30, 38, moved on in summer when I was 30, 39. But in the meanwhile, I had to learn French language. So I did my ministerial jobs and late evenings, early mornings, I studied French. So I was able to speak the language when I arrived mm. in Brussels. That was then very frank. Yeah. yeah, it's changed hugely since yes. then, hasn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> so... Were you motivated at all? I mean, Jacques Delors had made his speech about the creation of a European economic space, and there was the beginning of this discussion around the EEA. I was very much involved because I was member of the Foreign Policy Commission, Committee of the Government. So I was very much involved in that process. I knew it all. But I think the, the big question for me always was, will be equal member around the table where decisions are taken? When I was brought up, you know, that the big powers decided the fate of the country, you know. You had not to see. It was the use of force which sold. Could we ever have a chance that we are one of the equals, you know, have a seat, microphone, a nameplate? That was missing. So I was pro-European economic area, but it was not a solution because you don't have the seat. It doesn't mean us that the rule of law would replace your power because you're not around the table. Mm. And of course, there's a similar discussion going on now about some kind of halfway house for Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia. Do you understand that they feel perhaps the same way, that they're being treated slightly differently? Yes, of course, it's a big issue. I mean, there are two points. One is that you must fulfill all these conditions of EU members, such as rule of law, which applied broadly, respect of minorities, your commitment to fulfill all the obligations if they were to come from the EU. These were preconditions for the enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe. And they were signed in the treaty. And that was, I was there then. One mistake was done, that if somebody breaks those, how can you punish? And that was problem. I mean, the, Jean-Claude Piris, who was then the Director General for Legal Service of the Council, said that if you don't change this, it becomes all the time more 
difficult to make an exception. And I must say that was mistake in 99 in Berlin that we would when we over the way agreed that this principle must be applied. But if somebody breaks, there's infringement, how you react. That was made too complicated. I mean, as you say, he took that position. Did he have support? I mean, what, where, there, there, were, there, there were many, but there are many who supported. I mean, even I mean, Finland was open. We had very pro-European government by Prime Minister Lipponen. But then others explained that it's difficult at home. I'm sure Tony Blair, who was rather a European minister, said that if I go to the House of Commons, say that, you know, we don't have veto. That's difficult. And this veto right was played too high, which created a problem. But that, I mean, the rest was great, but this was made too complicated because you should have done it before that enlargement. You need to do it even now, but yeah. it's more complicated. Yeah, yeah, and it's certainly becoming an issue now. Once Finland joined the EU, you became the country's commissioner and President Jacques Santer. And that commission... I, I actually spent one month already with President Delors. Oh, we before, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that commission is remembered for the Van Bertenen crisis, yeah. Cresson and so on, which took up a lot of your time. But looking back, was it as important as it seemed then to the Brussels bubble. Just to say that what this commission did, first one, really it, it made this enlargement possible so that you had to really streamline the budget, EU spending, simplify rules that be applied everywhere. It was a great event. But then the second issue, like this Cresson crisis, I went through all the documents in the hindsight. And the real problem for Madame Cresson was that her advisor had been following her through all her career, became had the age which was above 65. 65 was absolute age limit. And when they had to try to find a solution how he could continue to work as an advisor, they had to bypass some normal practice. That's where it came from. I must say it was wrong. But the question was that huge, as people say today, it does look the high side. It's wrong. And of course, especially in France, but also in other countries, ministers have a practice that they have advisors which they are able to nominate freely. <laughs> But in EU, they had this age limit rule, which made it more complicated. But I think that the Jacques Santer was, by the way, a great person, person of high integrity. His moral standards were extremely high. And actually, the only regret I have that he paid price for something he never had any responsibility for. Yeah. What do you think drove it? Because it did seem to come from nowhere. As you say, there have been many little scandals. Like there, were, I think there were small issues, but I mean, when I followed, I was commissioned last yeah. after. There were many worse cases later. <laughs> I think it was about the power balance between European Parliament right. and the, well, the European Parliament and the Council. And one big change was that Germany changed the period because in Germany, Helmut Kohl lost the election and Schroeder came into power. So those who were very much supporting EU, of course, both had a different period. They didn't have this kind of commitment to support issues were run in Brussels. That was one of the reasons. But it's also a learning process. But it's good to study the case in detail, but because the real issues were not big. Bad judgment from commissioners, but the commission went enormously forward. I mean, in gives them good practices, good administration, financial controls, and so forth. Mm. Well, as you said, I mean, I remember that commission for the detailed work on the design of the euro area, for example, yeah. the... Leon Britton's attempts to create a transatlantic partnership with the Americans. And I also remember, because I covered it at the time, there were quite substantial differences over competition policy between Cresson and Commissioner Van Miert and so on. What was it like inside? Were there these political tensions or was it sort of 
people's idea of a automated bureaucracy. Can I just first say that I was able to stay a short period with Jacques, Jacques Delors. I was also ambassador. Mm. He is full control. I mean, he was able to handle details and big questions of direction. He was also, Jacques Santer was very knowledgeable about Europe. He has grown up in Brussels and in Luxembourg in these years. So they were very, very good presidents. Around the table, there was one, I think one point which I learned before I got there. It was Etienne Davignon, former vice president, said to me that, remember that you must know the files best to have influence and still to separate details from the big political questions. Around the table, that was turned to be so. Of course, cabinet members are important, but they don't have a say. Hmm. They don't say all the members matter. If you strike free trade or competition policy, in the end, the internal market, basic approach to free trade were dominant. So people were able to put the positions there, but this was dominant trends. And in the global situation, I think that was very important. Hmm. I mean, looking back, do you feel that the commission took the right decisions in terms of design of the Eurozone? Yes. And I mean, the commission played their very important role in preparation. Actually, Delaware Committee was the first yeah. one. It did very good work there at the time. The only missing part, I mean, was that you should have had the banking union. Yeah. You know, you, you had bank supervision, European level, bank resolution, deposit insurance. That was discussed at the time. But member states didn't want because they think, that, you know, we can handle our banks. We know they are in good shape. Mm. But that was missing part. That's why I was very actively supporting this project 2012 when it came back, when I was then in the ECB and mm. in the Central Bank. So that was missing part. That's wrong. Second issues are then the fiscal rules, which are now back on the table. And you had to fix something to get started, good standards. But now, today, it's more fine-tuned discussions, and I think more work is needed there. At the time, do you think some of the problems there were the dominance of Kohl and Weigel, that essentially, and Jürgen Stark, actually, that there was an agenda that was imposed and that other countries really kind of stood back from. We must also be fair here. We want to have the stability of Deutsche Mark. So they had more to give than anybody. Mm. And then they were ready to agree on the Euro and Economic Monetary Union. They want to guarantee that the same principles apply. So it's easy to say that they want to have their strong currency and our loose policies. It doesn't work. But of course, things have moved on. And it's very important to find now solutions which are more fine-tuned, more growth, growth supportive. About Germany, just uh, I worked for such a long time with the German, different German governments, but in the end of the day, still it's a very solid European player because countries normally pay their own share, but not the penny more. But Germany always paid that share and even something more when needed. So that's why I, a lot of respect, I worked with, I followed Helmut Kohl, and I knew Willy Brandt already, Helmut Schmidt, Helmut Kohl. But also Gerhard Schröder, the chair of the council, was very European. Angela Merkel has done the same. So I don't belong to those attack Germans club. In the end, they have paid more than their own share. Hmm. Actually, on that, I mean, there are countries like Finland, the Netherlands, some of the Baltic states who perhaps feel that Germany doesn't always have their back in terms of being a fiscal conservative. Is that something that you witness that Germany would go so far with the fiscal conservatives and then back off? I mean, in the end, of course, this EU is about reconciliation of Germany and France. I mean, those two countries started world wars. 
more than, you know, and it's about how to make reconciliation. And that is something they don't give away. And Germany is very careful with that. But some people are a little jealous that how they have gone so far. But my German friend once said that when we talk to French, we solve so many problems and we save you from those because they are further away than we are from them. I think the way it's working, it's not terribly dramatic because around the table, you can see you still have your say. Mm. That was happened when the COVID crisis, when big packages were done, you know, Finland and the others played a big role in fine-tuning. You still need the unanimity, mm. correct majority here and there. Yeah. yeah. And I want to come back to the new transatlantic marketplace. Was that ever a possibility at that time, or was it doomed? I mean, in principle, we all agreed that we must be able to have broader free trade between EU, EU and America, and in details. Of course, there's been a lot of progress, mm. but this kind of big concept structure. I think in, in America, to win the real global support for both parties would not have been easy. Mm. So after the Santer Commission, you joined Romano Prodi's commission, which was meant to be a new broom with a new institutional structure. Can you tell us what a commission transition is like? First of all, just to say that Jacques Santer, I say, a man of high integrity who knew European issues in and out, worked from early day in the evening, was very spread purple person. Roman Prodi had a different style. We started meetings rather late. You're what exactly so we start. He had great principles, but he is not the man of the details. Mm. And then my files changed. When in the Santa Commission I had global responsibility for budget and administration, I had a lot of in-house power. I mean everybody had to come to talk to me. When I went the Prodi Commission had major files such as the whole telecom, I mean internet file, all pharmaceuticals chemicals, all the industries. So I had many sectors which I was ruined. So there were not many who wanted to come to me inside the house, but many outside. <laughs> so it was a big change. Rodney Commission was less organized, but they had great stars and great commissioners. I mean, for instance, Pascal Lamy came from France with Trade Commissioner. We had Chris Patton from the UK, Neil Kinnock. It was a great period, I mean. But it was not organized in the same manner we had, mm. had used with Delors and Delors and Sun. Well, actually, on that point, do you think it works to have these major political figures in the Commission College? or Because I think probably many people, many European citizens feel that the Commission is a straightforward executive agency. It's not a cabinet. It's both and. I mean, when Juncker said that he's the first political commission, it just goes too far. But there are two roles. Mm. It must show direction, because when you make initiatives, you have the problem initiatives, it must have political direction, it must have a purpose. On the other hand, you must protect the European law, integrity of the law. You have also gone the treaty. You must have the both chances. Perhaps earlier it was too much about the gunning of the treaty, perhaps during Juncker time or later, too much about politics, but you need to do both. I'm convinced that if you have a political background, if you have been a minister, you carry weight when you go to the council of ministers or you go to parliament. If you don't have this background, there's a risk that you don't have the same influence. Hmm. Yeah. But it's all the respect I've been in politics and civil servant, both are important, but somehow commissioner must combine both. And then the permanent staff in the commission is then the, which executes. But the decisions linked to that must be done by the college. Yeah. And I believe your book about your memoirs when you were a commissioner is coming out in English? It's translated. Let's see when it will be published. But I wrote the book. And the reason was simple. I went to Brussels in 1990 
I tried to study everything published about the commission work. And I spoke, you know, French and English, and I was able to read German. And there was not a single book done personally by a commission about how the system operates. There were many, you know, which concentrated on the issues, but the way how it operates was difficult. So I wanted to write it down. So I based it on my diaries, first five years, and then the rest of five years, you know, files by files. And I think those who have worked in the commission and want to follow it may be exciting. Yeah. From some others, perhaps a little boring. <laughs> well, actually, on that score, I don't know who you appointed as your first chef de cabinet, but do you think there's an advantage to getting someone from inside the services so that they know the ropes? I think both, both, but both ways. When I was the first commissioner, I want to take into account some political balances at home hmm. because I was social democrat, former minister, and centre right. They were uneasy of the situation. I nominated somebody from the cabinet of the centre party prime minister to, to balance it. But then next level, deputy was always hardcore, hardcore right. bureaucrat. So I had a budget. I carefully looked through a person who runs the administration and the budget. So you need absolutely from there. But sometimes you need to run your home base also, to liberate your, for yourself to work. Uh, that's why Ole Rehn was my head of cabinet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you went straight from, as you described your file, straight from microeconomics in the form of commissioner for IT and so on, to macroeconomics at the Bank of Finland and at the European Central Bank. What kind of preparatory work did you have to do for that? I was macroeconomist. I used to work, I was very close to Bank of Finland for a long time because I was actually quite chair of the so-called Monetary Policy Committee. not co- Because it was not Monetary Policy Committee, but it was bank supervisors, but they decided about monetary policy. Yeah. So I had been there before I went to Brussels. And then I followed, of course, when EU, Bank of Finland became part of the system. But I had not been inside. But when I was asked to become the governor of Bank of Finland, I was very excited. I somehow also relieved that I knew enough file to be comfortable but I had to learn enough to be excited. So I just said the balance of being comfortable, being excited. So it was a great time. And I was very warmly welcomed by Jean-Claude Richet when I came there. And we have become very close colleagues and friends since that. Still, still be working mm. together recent mm. times. And I learned to know my colleagues around Europe. I knew some of them because they had been also ministers and so forth. But it was Absolute great period. We had, you know, Otma Ising was there when I went. Thomas Upadowski, yeah. great, great, great face. <coughs> glory days. Yes, glory days, yes. Was the governing council very different from the Commission College? In terms that, of that's management? a very good, you have to know yeah. what ever asked. It's interestingly, you know, I lived in Brussels for 14 years, 10 years as a commissioner. Commissioners spent less time together than members of the governing council. <laughs> Because we had, in commission, we had a weekly meeting Wednesday from 9 to 12, 1 o'clock, when Romano Prodi started close to 10. That's it. We perhaps had lunch afterwards. But the governing council members, every two weeks, we landed Frankfurt by 6 or 5 o'clock. We had a seminar, then dinner, then after that, the whole meeting the following morning. So in hours, we spent much more, much more together. And of course, and our agenda was more limited, so we were able to focus. So when you talk about monetary policy, financial stability, you go from research to market operations. There's a diff- there, there was a difference. Different than the, yeah, in that sense that we spent so much together. Mm-hmm. A very cohesive organization. And the, yeah, I seem to remember that the beginning of the ECP, it was just the one-day meeting. 
And then it turned into this Wednesday seminar, Thursday formal meeting with the dinner. Now, the dinner developed a reputation for being the place where business was really done. Is that correct? That's perhaps, I mean, reveal a secret that, you know, Jacques Rocher was excited always to continue the discussion. <laughs> I remember sometimes it was midnight, 12 o'clock, and dinner was going, you have no other issues you want to talk about, Jacques Rocher. They said that people are just tired want to move on. Sometimes, of course, continued in the hotel, the discussions. Mario Draghi wanted to finish earlier. So it's 10, 10.30. It wasn't normally done. But they were always, they were always important. But I wouldn't say that things were fixed there. Mm-hmm. But this kind of preparatory discussions to test what other feelings and balances was done there. But in the end, proper meetings were critical. Later, the seminars before dinner also, and the real meetings later. And who usually chose the subject of the seminars? Was that decided by the... No, it was, it was by the executive board. But of course, we were able to throw ideas. If you had a good idea, normally it was respected. Mm. I was, yeah, I very much enjoyed my period. And also the balance that you run. You have government, Central Bank of Finland. You play your role here also on other economic issues. When you yeah. go to Frankfurt, it's a European yeah. task and it worked fine. Famously, well, the governing council doesn't vote on monetary policy decisions. Instead, the president sort of rounds up the view and concludes. Do you think at some point you will move to, or they will move to vote? In principle, so. But in some critical moments, there were also disagreements. I remember this famous discussion about whatever it takes. takes. Mario Draghi was president of the ECB and a great president, and I worked very closely also with him trying to support the basic line. I remember one discussion we had between us is that if we want, need to do it, do we unanimity or can we go alone? Can we go after a vote? Then I must say that you must keep that always option open. Because if you say that we always vote for unanimity, you you know, unconditional veto to somebody. Mm-hmm. Keep the options open. Try to make it unanimity, but guarantee that you move on even in case on one or two against. And we, in critical, some critical cases, we had to do that way, whatever it takes. That was his statement. But when we had to move to actions, what needs to be done, they were not all done by unanimity, but great majority was supported. How many of you knew that whatever it takes was coming? Or was the discussion after he'd said it in London? Yeah. <laughs> I remember my colleague from UK called me couple of days later that he didn't have a written note when he's making that but, but if it's well prepared you don't need to read a note but it needs more preparation at that time he says these words i didn't know but was i surprised no hmm. we discussed a lot on the sensitivity of the issue on the one hand that 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 if you fix limit you are not strong enough it's whatever it takes really critical but i interpret it also in the way that also, if needed, you don't need unanimity. And we have discussed with Mario Draghi about that later. And I think focus was on the first side, but my interpretation that it was also second was due to our discussion. Mm-hmm. Because if you need to do something massive, do you let one or two to prevent it? You hope it's unanimous, but if not, then you must be able to take also risk. Mm. Did that happen? Because from my memory, two Bundesbank presidents disliked a policy but allowed it to go through. Were there times where where essentially a veto was established? It was always sensitive. I mean, both Trichet and Draghi were 
they followed Germany very well and great respect for Germany. But they had to guarantee that we are European institutions. We are working in Frankfurt, you know, that we need to go for Europe too. So they, they had to make choices where tell that, you know, monetary policy is a common issue. Hmm. But in German, discussion was very tough. I mean, the German government had a difficulty. But they, they didn't push for the veto. But I mean, of course, tough moments. But this, whatever it takes, for instance, that was by his leadership. But we go to implementation, then we had to, we needed support of the others to make it credible. And then Germany, uh, let's say Bundesbank, uh, they didn't go along with all, all details. Hmm. I mean, you touched on it there, but by reputation, Trichet and Draghi had very different presidential styles. And Lagarde's, from what I hear, is similar to Trichet's in terms of trying to keep as many people on board, whereas Draghi tended to move quickly in small groups. Is that a fair characterization? I don't know. I, have, <laughs> I work very well with both. And I still work well, by the way, Trichet, because he was, when I was doing the global standards for sustainability, I'm chairing International Financial Reporting Foundation. He has been chairing one of our advisory groups. He asked me to come his uh, mm-hmm. successor in Bruegel Task Force. Let's say it's a different style. Perhaps during Richard times we spoke more. Mm-hmm. But during Draghi's time, we focus more precisely on the finalization. But it's not so dramatic. Because I had a feeling that if I had something to say, I could connect them, talk directly to Trisha and to Drak, and I think the others have the same. You don't always need to come to the meeting. You say mm. before that my feeling is that, you know, we should go for that direction. And if you have your ear, you had the argument, that's fine. But really, Draghi finished 10 o'clock. <laughs> was able to continue at 12. <laughs> that's a big difference in the evenings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The authority of the presidency itself, because of course, the room is full of national yeah. presidents. Yeah. Do you think that authority has developed over time? I've not followed how Christine Lagarde does it. I've not been in the room. Hmm. But I mean, both were strong presidents, strong presidents. Perhaps it's, if I can now reveal a small secret, that different style in the meeting when he spoke was that Trisha reacted more often during the meeting, but only when he disagreed. <laughs> yeah, he didn't say that I agree with it. He just, when he disagreed, Mario Draghi... But which was more dialogue in that sense. Draghi very often listened to debate to the very end, then came then in. So it's both have their points. I just what's right or what's wrong. The first one takes more time, of course. Second time, you try to guess what what president thinks, but it's but great great people both. I mean we have been very lucky with yeah. presidents. Yeah. And over the time you were on the council, were there people who you felt sort of shaped the debate when they spoke, people now I'm not looked up from their notes. Not, not, not position. I mean, perhaps one difference maybe today. If I want to have real influence on decision, I don't speak about monetary policy before the governing council meetings. Hmm. I saved my comments to the very end. And then in discussion, you have two positions. Do you want to shape the discussion or have influence on the decision? Hmm. Shape the discussion, you must go in early. If you want to influence the decision when you do it, you must come later because then you can take into account what the others have said and try to formulate the compromises. It varied. I mean, I tried to, I always before and tried to find between these two. But there are people who are listened to. And normally they are those ones who and they won't want to have influence on the decision. Right. Because you need to have your opinion, but you need to have 
listen to the others, that how you formulate decisions in the way that all can follow it. Mm. From my memory, going back to 2007, 2008, the beginning of the financial crisis, Bank of Finland was quite influential in terms of the design of the response. Am I remembering that correctly? I think, but I'm afraid we, <laughs> I'd be a little prudent here, but I think we had a role to play because we didn't have any on domestic problems here. Mm. We just worked for European solutions. Mm. And I think most people trusted, trusted that we just find a fun solution, which is best for a whole euro area. Mm. And if you trust that their intentions are proper, not, you know, domestic political one, then mm. you are normally carry, carry more weight. Yeah. I hope so, but you must ask my colleague about it. Yeah. One last question, and it's a big one, which is coming back from all this and looking at the transformation of Europe since February. It feels as though the balance of power inside the EU has shifted towards Russia's border states and the Union is going to have to open to Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia over time. And Joschka Fischer, the former German foreign minister, has written that this enlargement process will fundamentally change the EU, transforming it decidedly into a geopolitical player and indeed into Russia's main adversary on the continent. Europe's only real choice then is to pursue prudent alliances, develop its own power and build up its deterrence capabilities. Is this a view you share? Yeah, to a certain extent. Just that there's one issue we somehow need to sort out, whether we need change the treat or create new practices. But mm. you must be able to be efficient, you know, when you take decisions. And it worked rather well during the last two years, I mean, COVID crisis and Ukraine. So you, the coherence was found too quickly. But to avoid that one or two countries make it impossible. You just need to have practice. Either so that you do practice that this kind of vetoes cannot be used to make the organization inefficient or change the treaty. So that's the issue. Second question about this deterrence area, of course, now the, the role of NATO in this discussion will be different because, you know, we neutral countries, we so-called neutral countries were outside. So you had to make a big separation about security policy of EU and NATO. It's now different from this on and that certainly has an impact. Sure, I mean, Europe must stick together and define its role. And I must say, when you look at the last two years, I'm not being around the table. I have a lot of respect the way they have run the issues. Mm. I've been great support. I mean, during COVID crisis, imagination was strong. New solutions were found. Now, after Ukraine, tremendous decisions have been done. And I don't put in didn't know that he actually united Europe and interesting, not only policymakers, but also people. I mean, in Finland, people ask that, why did you... I was in London, and they asked me, why did your position change? And then there were three Ps. Putin, he united us. People, they saw big change. Their opinion changed. Third, politics. Political parties really followed both the world events and domestic opinions, and we were able to make big changes. And I think this was very good. But still role of NATO on the one hand will be stronger, EU will be stronger. Just guarantee that their decision-making structures are the ones that can distract big issues when the time comes. 